With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get in zone. AutoZone. Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? Ah, thinking about gas mileage. You know, changing your oil with a full synthetic oil like Castrol Edge can help your engine get more miles. Right now, you can get five quarts with an STP Extended Life oil filter for only $36.99. Get started on your next job today with the parts you need when you need them at AutoZone or AutoZone.com. Get in zone, AutoZone. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. John Burka joins us on Sports Byline, pitcher who pitched in the majors for 16 seasons with San Francisco, Florida, the Rangers, Braves, and the Red Sox, and he's still playing professional sports, this time as a pro bowler. He has 12 perfect games, and I've got to start off, John, by asking you, which do you think is harder, throwing a perfect game in baseball or a 300 game in bowling? There's no question about that one. It's definitely throwing a perfect game in, in baseball. Uh yeah, to get 27 up and 27 down with no errors and no walks is definitely uh, tougher than throwing 12 strikes in a row. You mentioned about the 12 perfect games, or I mentioned about the 12 perfect games, and I'm just wondering, when you think back upon them, take me through a perfect game in bowling, what you have to do and, and what it's like. Well, you never really start thinking about it until, you know, after seven or eight strikes, you know, sometimes even further along than that. For me, it's seven or eight. I kind of realize, hey, yeah, I have a chance to do it. Uh, but it doesn't become, you know, really important until probably the 11th or 12th shot. Because when, when you get up here in the 10th frame, you know, you've been sitting down for a little while. So when you get up in the 10th frame, uh, once you get that first one, then you get to step right back up because you get to throw three in the 10th. So uh, that's when you start. Uh, bowling is much easier if you get to do it right after another, you know, one, one shot right after another, kind of like in practice. And uh, but in league, uh, whenever you have to sit down and wait, sometimes uh, the muscles will freeze up a little bit. You know, you kind of forget what you did last time, and, and it makes it a little tougher. So, for sure, after that first one of the test, you start thinking about it. I was interested. Your legs, your legs, excuse me. Then your legs start wobbling in the twelfth one, especially whenever I was I was seventeen years old when I shot my first one. So I was really nervous on the last shot. What is it like when you have to throw that third ball in the tenth frame? And that's what I was going to say. Yeah, your legs get a little wobbly. The ball seems to weigh 25 pounds instead of 16 or 15. And uh, especially, like I said, when I was 17 years old, I remember just shaking, you know, uh, getting ready to throw that last one because it was just such an important thing for me to, you know, for my first 300. And after you throw a 300 gain, the exhilaration, is it anything like baseball when you've thrown something special or done a good job, whether it's a no-hitter or not, or a perfect game? Absolutely. Anytime you, you know, are perfect in any sport, uh, 
you know, just that worry makes you excited, you know, to know that you accomplished something that uh, you can't surpass because you've done it, you know, perfectly and flawlessly. You once said, I wanted to be a professional bowler before I ever took up baseball. Bowling was my favorite sport for sure. Mm-hmm. Where did that love come from? I don't know. I think, I, I mean, I, I, as far as long, as far back as I can remember, I mean, I, I bowled. My dad, you know, was nice enough, uh, you know, as an adult, taking going to, you know, adult leagues. He used to bring me along just because he knew how much I loved the game. And I'd either watch or, uh, if they got some lanes freed up, you know, while he was bowling, I would, you know, practice a little bit on my own. Uh, it's just something that I've always done, you know, as a little kid. And then I've just continued it all the way till now. And I, I always wanted to compete in the game and in the sport uh, at a high level. And I always felt like I could, but I got drafted in baseball my senior year in high school and decided to, you know, take that road first. And uh, fortunately that worked out. And uh, now I'm able to do, you know, to bowl, uh, against the the guys that I watched uh, all my years in baseball, and you know, thought that I could compete with, and I'm getting a chance to do that now. Take me back to Beaver, Pennsylvania. What kind of town was it? Very small town, yeah, uh, very clean town, yeah, a lot of great people. Uh, and uh, the one great thing about that town was that we had a a duck pin bowling center, a six lane center that I worked. That was my first job set pins and i had some buddies that we uh we all worked there then they converted it into 10 pins uh the porter family and the Ranelli family uh it was a father and daughter and uh you know in-laws that, that bought the place and uh turned it into 10 pins and i showed up as soon as i heard they were they were doing it and switching it over to 10 pins i showed up and asked them if i could uh work for free and both Bowl for free. I said, you don't have to pay me if, if I get the bowl for free. And, uh, so we made an agreement. They pay me a dollar fifty an hour on top of my free bowling. So uh, a lot of people don't great. understand, John, the the difference between duck pin bowling and now I do and ten pin bowling. Explain the difference to everybody. Yeah, duck pin bowling is uh the short. They were shorter pins and fatter pins, and they had a uh, they had like a hard rubber band around them, a thick rubber band around them, so they didn't fly around as much as ten pins do. And, but they were the same space apart. And uh, when you knock them over, they, like I said, they don't fly around. They just kind of roll on the deck and uh, because that rubber band would catch, you know. And then the balls were very small, uh, almost like the ski balls you see at the you know, amusement parks and the you know, game rooms, maybe a little bit bigger than that, but not much bigger. And uh, so you could actually chop two through the middle. So if you hit the one pin, the head pin, and the middle pin, the one and five, you could chop two straight back. Well, in ten pins, that doesn't happen. You'll leave a you know big four or seven ten or something split, but you never chop two right right out of the center of the of the uh, you know rack. And and, and duck pin, a good bowling average in duck pin was like one fifty to one sixty. It, it was very difficult. Where in ten pins, you see people averaging two twenty, two thirty. A lot of people don't realize that bowling used to be a big television, network television uh, program every Saturday. It was on ABC. I remember it as a kid. I used to watch it. And it was something that in the Midwest, uh, that part of the country, everybody sat down and watched uh, bowling on television. Absolutely. That was part of my childhood. I, it came on at 3.30 Eastern. Uh, so baseball came on at 2.15 on NBC, if you remember. 2.15 right. Eastern, the game of the week. And then I had to make a decision uh, after an hour and a half of the baseball game, am I going to switch over to, to bowling, which I did every single time, because I don't think I've missed a show since I was seven or eight years old. And then uh, the Wide World of Sports was on right after that. That's right. So, yeah. 
at you, 5 o'clock Eastern. Yeah. There were guys like Earl Anthony, who I got to know pretty well, and guys like Pete Weber. Tell me about some of those early heroes in bowling that you used to watch. Well, Earl was great, but he was left-handed, so I didn't relate to him very well. But, uh, <laughs> a great, but he was a great ambassador for the game and uh, well-liked. You know, I, now that I've bowled a few tournaments, I've gotten to hear all these stories, and you know, Earl seemed to be a uh, favorite of all you know, the, the bowlers. Mark Roth is my favorite growing up. He was the first one to, uh, what they call crank it, you know, and, and put the revolutions on the ball and make it hook a lot. So that was what I wanted to do. And uh, when I saw Mark Rothbull, I just wanted to do everything just like him. And uh, I wanted to have the big hook, you know, where Earl was more of a control guy, uh, accurate, you know, player. So yeah. Mark Roth was my favorite. Nick Weber was also one of my favorites. He's a little bit, early, you know, a little bit before, you know, my watching. I mean, he won a bunch of his titles before I started watching. I was, I was just a little kid. But, but Mark Roth was definitely the guy. And then Pete Weber, Pete Weber later on. Uh, he's my age, so you know I saw his career, you know, uh, pretty much his whole entire career, and, and now I'm getting a bowl against him on the PBA 50 tour. John, did you ever hear? Did you? They ever share any stories? Any of the people on the tour tell you about the early days of the pro bowling tour? What what it was like? Was it everybody getting into a bunch of cars and going from one stop to the next stop? Yes. Well, actually, they had like over. 30, I think they had 30 to 35 stops a year. So. Imagine that. I mean, you know, they they they, rode, they drove their own cars, you know, and uh, just went from stop to stop. And uh, the formats were a lot longer. Also, they bowled a lot more games. Now, now a regular PBA event will be, you know, like six to nine game qualifying rounds. PBA fifty tours two eight game blocks, so it's a little longer format. But but the regular tour is a shorter format. Where back in back in those days, uh, they were bowling I think twenty four games of qual eighteen maybe eighteen to twenty four games of qualifying, and they had match play. So. They had a lot of tournaments where they were bowling uh, 20, 30 games a week. What's the difference between today's professional bowler and also today's equipment that they used and what it was when you started bowling? Oh, it's a world of difference. You know, the, the, the land surface, too. You start out with lacquer surface, and then uh, they went to urethane surface, and urethane, you know, we had rubber balls and plastic balls to start. And then uh, when they went to urethane lanes, we had urethane balls, which started hooking a little bit more and caused a little more friction on the lane. And uh, then they went to reactive resin, and that's what we bowl on today. And it, it creates a lot more friction on the on the land surface. And you see guys trying to get really big hooks. Uh, the weight blocks have changed. The the, the shell, the outer shell, has changed to, to make them uh, you know hook a lot more. So you today's game is a lot more powerful you know, and a lot more exciting to watch. Uh, and, and now you have a new influx of two handers. So they use two fingers in the ball, no thumb, and they guide the ball with their left hand on top of the on top of the ball. You can picture that. And they keep that left hand on it all the way back to their backswing, and then they let it go at the end. And uh, so at the very end, they just have two fingers in the ball and no thumb, and they create a lot more revolutions and a lot more hook. We got about so thirty. Changed quite a bit. We got about thirty seconds before we have to break here, John. But uh, is there good money on the tour to be made by bowlers? Uh, it's not. It's not. Uh, not near as comparable to golf. Uh, yeah, I know that the, the, the bowling, the professional bowling community, would like to see uh, prize funds. You know, get up to at least close to the PGA Tour, but that's that hasn't happened yet. Uh, like you talked about earlier, it was on national TV a lot more back then. 
uh, in the 70s and 80s, and uh, the money was more comparable to golf. But now, since they got dropped from ABC, and uh, you know they're trying to work their way back, so that's kind of the stage it's in right now. John Burkett is with us. He pitched 16 seasons in the major leagues, but now a professional golfer, or excuse me, but now a professional bowler. We'll talk to him about his baseball career because it was very interesting as well. And we do that as we continue across the country and around the world. It's good to have you with us here on America's Sports Talk Show. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more. Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. John Burkett has joined us here on Sports Byline USA. As I mentioned, pitched 16 seasons in the major leagues with the Giants, Florida, the Rangers, Braves, and the Red Sox. And there's a great story that I read that even when you went to spring training, you had your VCR in the car so that you could tape shows and you had two bowling balls in the front seat of your car. Pick up the story from there. That car was a 1987 Honda Prelude. And I drove it. If you can picture a 1987 Honda Prelude, I drove it from Pittsburgh to Arizona, to Phoenix for spring training. So that's 32 hours. And I had my bowling balls and my VCR, and I had the rest of it was my uh, clothes. And my girlfriend at the time, uh, now is my wife, uh, we had all her stuff in there too. So she, she, she always gets on me about the, those times and, uh, the fact that she had to put her feet on my bowling balls. So <laughs> the, the bowling balls were in the, the, uh, on, you know, the bottom of the, uh, in, her, in the pasture seat. And so she had to put her feet on them. And during spring training, you said I'd find some little local tournament with a $50 first prize or whatever. Yeah. And I couldn't wait for our workouts to be over so I could go bowling. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I should have been so focused on baseball, right? But I just, I love bowling so much that I, uh, it really did consume me. And so there was, there were times when I was in the outfield shagging balls or whatever. And, you know, my work was done for the day, but you kind of have to hang out and, you know, and, uh, you know, fill out the time and fill out the day. And, uh, sometimes when the games would start, the starting pitchers could leave. And I was just, Looked forward to those days if they were on Saturday or Sunday because there would usually be a local tournament there in the Phoenix area, and I would uh, scoot out and bowl. You and I got to know each other when you were pitching for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you ended up in the Giants organization. Well, I got drafted in 1983 in the sixth round by the Giants and uh, spent seven years in the minor leagues with them. Uh, you know, I grinded out for seven years in the minor leagues. I was actually a six-year free agent. Nobody else wanted me, so I stayed with the Giants for my seventh year in the minor leagues. And uh, fortunately, I uh, picked up a split finger that 
year, and I was in AAA. Roger Craig was the manager, you remember? Right. And the split finger was his favorite pitch. So I threw 85 to 88 and nothing special. And I decided, uh, along with Larry Hardy, who was the pitching coach at the time, to uh, pick up a split finger to you know, maybe catch some attention from Roger. And I started out 2-1 and one in Phoenix and got called up April 27th of 1990, and I never went back. I went 14-7 my rookie year. Uh, won 22 games in uh, 93 in the last great pennant race. And we won 103 games, the Giants, and uh, the Braves won 104 and didn't make the playoffs. The next year was the wild card. So I ended up spending uh, five years with the Giants before uh, getting shipped off basically to Florida during the work stoppage situation of 1994. Let me ask you about Candlestick Park because uh, having been out to that park when it was uh, where the Giants played, uh, the players would complain about it. The media would complain about it. I don't know whether the fans complained about it. But what was your impression of it the first time you walked into it? Hey, it was a big league ballpark. That's what I cared about. <laughs> I was in the big leagues. But uh, I'll tell you what, I, I, I love San Francisco and I love Candlestick Park. It was like an old friend. I, I have a Twitter account. It's uh, at Berkey33, B-U-R-K-Y-33. I took a picture because I was there in San Francisco with my family here recently. When I was bowling out there, I passed Candlestick Park, or what what used to be Candlestick Park. I didn't realize they were tearing it down, and uh, there's like one section left of it, and I took a picture of it. I think the right field section is the only section left. So uh, it's like losing an old friend, you know. I, I loved pitching there. Hitters hated it because it was cold and windy, but I loved that the grass was long. I was a sinker ball pitcher, uh, especially night games. The ball didn't carry very well. Day, daytime, you'd have to keep the ball on the ground because it would, it would shoot out the right center a little bit. But uh, overall, I really loved that ballpark. Yeah, and the myth about it was Stu Miller got blown off the mound one time when he was <laughs> yeah. pitching, and I don't know whether it's fact or not. But, but anyway, did you have to pitch differently at home than maybe on the road because of the wind conditions and just uh, generally speaking about Candlestick? It was very cold out there. Yes, it was. I, I really didn't think about uh, the wind too much, except for the fact that yeah, I was a sinker ball guy. I, I relied on movement, so the wind was actually you know, a good thing for me. And I remember Billy Swift was there in 93, and I remember he came over from Seattle, and he loved it too. I mean, he just you know, just made your sinker that much better. Uh, even if the wind is blowing in your face, which makes our sinker really good because the wind's blowing in your face, didn't mean it was blowing out you know, in the outfield. You know, it could have been swirling around, and you'd actually have the wind blowing in, but uh, having it blowing at your face, uh, helping your sinker on the mound. So that was nice. I remember 1993 when you went 22-7, and seven, and I remember about the Giants with uh, Dusty Baker as your manager winning those 103 games, and it just did not seem right. How did the players react to that, to win 103 games and still not make the playoffs? Oh, man, I was so disappointed. We, you know, we'd never been in the playoffs. Uh, I came up in 1990. The Giants were in the World Series in 89, but we never made the playoffs after that. So that... That seemed like uh, you know a chance, and uh, to go. I mean, we. I think they had a seven-game lead at the All-Star break. I think the Braves went fifty and ten in the second half. We broke the record for wins in the second half, and uh, I think we fell behind by three and a half games at one time. And then we we stormed back and went sixteen and three or something. Our last nineteen games or something crazy, and and caught them with four games left. And, uh, and, you know, they, they beat the Rockies 
four straight, and we lost the last game of the year to the Dodgers. We had a four-game series against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. Yeah, you bring it up was a... so disappointing. It was very disappointing. Yeah, we to win 103 games and not get in. It's just crazy. You know, it's, we've never seen it since, and we may never see it with the wild cards. You bring up a very good point. I think that there are some very special rivalries in baseball. I think about the Yankees and the Red Sox, and you pitch for the Red Sox, and you might talk about that for a second, but also the Dodger-San Francisco giant rivalry as well. From a guy that was involved with it for a number of years, can you put your finger on what made it the rivalry that it was? Well, for me, when I signed in 1983, uh, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so you know, I was all about the Pirates. You know, I was a Pirates fan, and the Pirates and Phillies had a pretty good rivalry in the Reds. But when I got drafted by the Giants, I showed up at rookie ball. I remember uh, in Montana, and the first meeting we had, they looked at us and said, you're now San Francisco Giant, and you hate the Dodgers. And I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and uh, But I soon learned you know, how much we did hate the Dodgers, and I, I grew to hate them. I hated their white uniforms. <laughs> I mean, I just hated everything about them. So, uh, and the cool thing about my career was my first, when I first got called up, it was during the 90, 1990 season. And we had, we had a short strike in 1990. So we had makeup games. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. So, so when I got called up, I got, I pitched against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium in a one game series. We flew in for one game. I got called up, flew in for the game, beat the Dodgers. And then that was the beginning of my career. So that was kind of cool. Was it the same way in the Yankee-Red Sox rivalry? Was there real hatred between the two clubs? You know what? I I can't speak for everybody on our team, but uh, I just have to tell you, I mean, the, the Yankees, the players that uh, the Yankees had during their uh, dynasty in, in the mid-'90s, whenever we had to deal with them when I was with the Rangers and then, uh, and then whenever I went with the Red Sox in the early 2000s, we had a lot of respect for them. They had a lot of class guys on that team. Uh, you know, Jeter and Posada, Mariana Rivera, and Andy Pettit. And, I mean, they, they, they won with style and with class, so I don't think anybody hated them. But uh, they were in the way, you know, constantly. So you had to get to, get to the playoffs and get to the World Series, you had to go through them. So I think the, I think the whole league had a rivalry with the Yankees. John, let me me go back to the uh, Giants for just a second because I think you are probably a good person to get a perspective on this person, and it's Barry Bonds. Tell me a little bit about the first time you either saw him play and when he was a teammate of yours with the Giants. Give me a, uh, you know, because I think a lot has been said about Barry, and I certainly had my interactions with him as well. Right. But I think somebody that played with him or saw him every day in the clubhouse or on the field probably can put it into a better perspective. Well, I'll tell you this. I remember where I was whenever we got Barry. I was watching the basketball game, the college basketball game, and they broke in at halftime and said that the, the Giants had acquired Barry Bonds. I mean, it, I mean, it just immediately, you know, just fired me up because I knew what, what a great player he was. Uh, we went to spring training. I remember spring training pitching, guys hitting balls down the line. I thought they were doubles, and all of a sudden, Barry's over there cutting it off and throwing a ball a second. He was probably the best in history at making that play. And uh, I think he won the MVP that year in 1993. Uh, yeah, I think he did. It was like 49 home runs or something like that. He was an amazing player. We all know that. I, I, I remember spring training when he got to spring training his locker was next to mine i thought he was a skinny dude 
And whenever he took his shirt off, I'm like, oh my God, this dude's ripped. You know, <laughs> not as big as he got later in his career, but he was, he was a big guy, even though he was, you know, looked thin on the field. He was, he was still pretty thick, thick guy and strong guy, but it was just an amazing player. Uh, obviously a lot of people didn't like Barry, you know, he was very, sometimes he, you know, just my kind of aloof and, you know, it seemed, he seemed annoyed at times, you know, by people. So, uh, and, you know, something that I try to understand, especially with superstars like that, is that, you know, everybody wants their time all the time, you know? And so you kind of got to put yourself in their shoes for a little while, you know, sometimes and, and to understand them. But he was a fine teammate. I had no problem with him. I only, play, I only played there with him for two years, but uh, he was a great player while I was there, so. You know, to me, to me, that's the most important thing. I mean, what I worry about is what guys are doing on the field. He always hustled, played hard, and uh, you know, was just probably the best player in the league while I was there. What do you think was the essence of his success when he came to the plate? Because I was down at spring training one time, John, and uh, I was sitting there talking with him. Uh, I don't think he felt I was going to be a threat to him in any particular way, so right. he opened up a little bit to me. But I looked down at his wrists, and I noticed how developed they were. And I always felt that that his bat speed—that's the thing that always amazed me—was his bat speed came from those wrists. Tell me about right. him as a hitter. Uh, well, a lot of people uh, ask me, you know, who is, who is the toughest hitter you ever faced, and I always tell Barry. And uh, right-handed was Edgar Martinez, and Barry was the toughest left-handed. And to me, the toughest thing about facing uh, a hitter like Barry—number one, he knew the strike zone very well. I mean, he knew the strike zone like a, like a, like a great single hitter, you know, like a Tony Gwynn kind of thing. I mean, he, he knew the strike zone just as well as Tony Gwynn. Uh, if he threw the ball two inches off the plate, he took it like it was a foot off the plate. So that's number one. You had to throw strikes to him. Number two, he could hit for average, and he could hit for power in all fields, and that, that's what makes it difficult to pitch to guys like that. For Tony Gwynn, like I, when I faced Tony Gwynn, he was a great hitter, obviously. But I didn't have to worry about him hitting a home run, right, with nobody on. So the first pitch, you could just throw right in there. You know he's going to take a lot of times. So you're going to be 0-1. Well, with Barry, you just didn't know that. I mean, he, you know, if you, th- if you just throw one in there on the first pitch, you can take you deep. You know, you're, you're giving up a run right there. So uh, that's what just made him, you know, so dangerous. We only have about 90 seconds left, John. But uh, when you look back on your long career, were you surprised you played baseball as long as you did? <laughs> yes. First of all, coming from Beaver, Pennsylvania, a very small town, nobody was ever drafted there. That's why bowling was, I think that's part of the reason why bowling was such my focus, was so much of my focus, because I knew I could do that on my own. I didn't have to get drafted. Baseball, you pretty much have to get drafted. And I just didn't imagine, I could never imagine getting drafted you know, in, in baseball. But it happened. And, uh, you know, then I had such a struggle in the minor leagues early. You know, you, you keep working hard and uh, and hope you get there, but I don't know if you ever really believe you're going to get there. And then the day I did get there, I didn't want to go back to the minor leagues. So I took it. I took every season as if I had to win a job, and that's probably why I, I lasted so long. I was always trying to get better. I was adding different pitches. When I first got called up, I was, you know, sinker, slider, change-up. And whenever I finished, I was, Two-seamer, four-seamer, cutter. You had three different <laughs> speeds on a curveball. You know, had two different sliders. Yeah, so uh, I think that's 
you know, the reason why I stuck around so long. But when it was all over, I couldn't believe. Yeah, it, it is kind of crazy to think you played 15, 16 years in the big leagues. John, I want to thank you very much. It's nice to reconnect with you again because I loved uh, covering you when I was on television here in San Francisco. Thank you yeah. for joining us on Sports Byline. You are welcome here anytime, and good luck on the pro bowling tour. Thank you very much. This is good. great talking to you, Ron. John Burkett with us again, pitched 16 seasons in the majors, pitching for the Giants, Florida, the Rangers, the Braves, and the Red Sox. And his best season, that came in 1993. It was an outstanding season. He went 22-7. and And also, he was a National League All-Star, not only in that season, but again in 2001. We continue with more of you in Sports Byline. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8-Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.